Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, fans of Takeaways. Here is another NAOP Southern Nevada program recap. NAOP, you should know by now because I say it every single time. NAOP is the Association for the Commercial Real Estate Development Industry. The February program was titled, Show Me the Money. You like that? Show Me the Money, Las Vegas Capital Markets Experts. You know, there's so much happening right now around capital and interest rates and buyer and seller behavior that this panel was super timely. The panelists that we had were actually, in fact, experts in this in this category of commercial real estate. We had Marlene Fujita, who is an executive director with Cushman and Wakefield. Dina Marcello, who is an executive vice president with Collier's International. And Bobby Barra, executive vice president with CBRE Capital Markets. And can we talk about the moderator for a second? Holy smokes. Jamie Talgett killed it. She's a shareholder with Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. You know, I've been a moderator before, so I know a thing or two about what goes into being up there on the stage with prepared questions, with navigating a conversation. And let me tell you, Jamie was poised. She was prepared. She was fantastic. The program sponsor was Gensler. It was a freaking packed house. There were tables from end to end. Very little seats were empty. Congratulations, now Programs Committee. That one was, uh, you just killed it on that one. All right, I'm going to go away. You're going to hear applause. Then you will hear the full program with the panelists themselves and the magnificent moderator, Jamie. The program again is Show Me the Money, a Las Vegas capital markets love story. Enjoy. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I was honored to be asked to come here today to facilitate a conversation about the investment sales market and our debt markets in the commercial real estate industry. I think you probably don't see too many attorneys up here moderating or on panels uh, for market updates just because we sort of sit in an interesting position. Um, we are involved and we feel the effects of the workflow and that it passes our desk, but we're not always involved on the front end to really understand the underwriting process and all of the factors that go into actually having the deal reach that point to where we're papering it and helping to bring it to fruition. Um, so hopefully that puts me in a good place to ask questions and the programs committee has done an excellent job picking a panel that will be able to answer them quite well. Um, so I, I'm sure you know most of our panelists, if not all of them, but I did want to just take a quick minute to honor them and to um, provide a little bit of background on each of them like Reed so kindly just did for me. Um, first, we have Marlene Fujita. Marlene was recruited as an executive director to Cushman and Wakefield's Las Vegas office in 2019 after previously spending 19 years at CBRE as a senior vice president of Capital Markets Investment Properties Las Vegas. As an executive director of Nevada Investment Properties Capital Markets, Marlene focuses primarily on the acquisition and disposition of income-producing properties valued at more than a million dollars. Since January of 2010, 
Marlene has completed more than 130 dispositions in the Las Vegas area. So welcome to Marlene. Uh, next, we have Dina Marcello. Dina is a third-generation real estate professional and a recognized leader in the commercial real estate industry. Dina is a 23-year resident of Las Vegas who brings over 13 years of experience specializing in commercial real estate, investment, and owner-user sales, as well as representation for national retail tenants and institutional landlords. Dina serves as an executive vice president at Collier's, where she focuses on the stabilization and disposition of assets and implementing strategic planning to maximize value for her clients. And we were in the same DLI class, so I had to mention that. We were not on the same team, but we are today. So <laughs> welcome, Dina. And last but certainly not least, uh, Robert Bob Ibarra. Bob joined the CBRE Capital Markets Phoenix operation in May of 1998 and brings more than 24 years of experience in producing an excess of $30 billion in debt and equity transactions with various lenders. Bob has been instrumental in working with clients on all of their commercial loan-related needs, including new loan originations, loan extensions, discounted payoffs, and amortization rescheduling. Bob's team is recognized as one of the top debt and structured finance production teams in the country. Welcome, Bob. So I just wanted to kick everything off today by sort of offering my perspective and um, an example of where I have seen the market go over the last couple of years. Normally, you won't see an attorney stand up in front of a room of 150 brokers and talk about a specific client matter because of confidentiality and attorney-client privilege considerations. Um, but in this case, the client was a governmental entity, and it was a pretty well-publicized matter. Um, and the deal itself is public since it was a government entity, the LVCVA. So we sort of kicked off the deal pre-COVID. It lived through the shutdowns, resurfaced, and then was eventually inked at the end of 21. Um, the deal was anticipated to close in mid-22. And then, unfortunately, by the end of the year, as things had sort of shifted, it did not end up closing. And that deal was the sale of about 10 acres at the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Elvis Presley. Uh, the LVCVA and the developer were both very excited about the opportunity. And to avoid sharing any attorney-client information, I'm just going to sort of quote from the RJ article about what happened. Um, Steve Hill, the CEO of LVCVA, said, the land sale to the developer, Claudio Fisher, did not close on December 15th. As a result, the LVCVA terminated the agreement, received the $7 million deposit, and relisted the property. And then the developer offered a public reason for the sale falling through, claiming rising interest rates in the United States no longer allowed his planned resort to pencil out financially. Um, he was discouraged by the Federal Reserve implementing seven consecutive rate heights that, that year. So that's sort of where I saw the market go by the end of uh, 22. And I'd just like to kick things off by starting with Bob and asking if you could sort of give us your perspective on where the market sat a year ago today as compared to where we're at now. Sure, happy to. Can you hear me OK? Everybody can hear me? Great. Well, I guess um, obviously we're, we're in interesting times now, an inflationary environment. Um, and, and the feds are doing everything they can to kind of squash that, right? And so as a result, you're seeing the, the Fed funds rate tick up 
um, and they anticipate additional bumps to the Fed fund rates over the next um, couple of meetings. So we're going to have some more pain, unfortunately. So I think it's good to understand that you know, where we're at today compared to where we were at last year at this time, because it is contrastingly different. Um, I'm going to talk about really two indexes. I don't want to get too granular, but I think it's just a good base for which to start. Um, and I'm going to talk about fixed rate money and floating rate money. Um, both of the indexes have, have increased substantially. As far as the 10-year treasury, which is typically what borrowers look for to hold long-term in, in terms of a long-term hold, that's what lenders typically go towards or look to to size or, or price deals. And so the 10-year treasury, and I've got my notes, so I'm going to try not to look at them, but a lot of numbers here. Last year at this time, was it just a hair over 2%. Today, we're at 3.80%. So it's a 180 basis point increase just on the Treasury alone, which obviously is substantial and impacts values overall that we'll get into, into later. But I think you've got to have a little bit of perspective when it comes to, to, the, to that Treasury figure. Because when you look historically at Treasuries, I mean, in the 80s, they were as high as 15% in the early 80s with inflation. Historically speaking, Last 60 years, it's just, a, on average, it's a hair under 6% in terms of the index itself. So a 380 treasury is not a bad treasury when you look at it. It's just a bad treasury when you look at it over the context of the last two years, where the treasury was considerably lower. In fact, it floored out at about 50 basis points during COVID. So we are substantially higher since COVID. That's the fixed rate index that people are commonly turn to for pricing. The floating rate index is, is, is SOFR, which has now taken the place of LIBOR. Well, a year ago today, SOFR was at 0.05%, essentially zero. Now, last I checked, and that's on the run, so that means it's always moving, it is at 4.56%. So 4.5% uh, difference, 450 basis points higher than where we were a year ago. What does that mean overall in terms of interest rates for us? Well, on the 10-year money, just coming off of the MBA, um, I spent three days in San Diego, met with probably 30 or 40 different lending sources, primarily on-book sources, life insurance companies. Today's pricing for traditional real estate, your four major food groups, is anywhere between 170 and 200 basis points over the Treasury. So interest rates today are in the 55 to 6% range, plus or minus. When you look historically, I looked uh, within CBRE's system of all the loans historically that we've closed over the, over the country. This is the, the company, corporate. On average, the 10-year fixed rate loans that we closed this time last year was in the low threes on average in terms of fixed interest rates. The year before, also in the low threes, coincidentally, in 2021, with this time. Um, in 21. The, the most competitive occurred during the heart of COVID, where the Treasury was down in the 50 basis point range, where we were able to secure, the, this was a, the, the most competitive pricing I was able to secure in my lifetime, which was a 20-year fixed rate deal on an industrial portfolio that priced at 2.13% on the coupon. Wow. So that is, um, that is basically 150 basis points, 100 and 70 basis points below what the federal government is borrowing today, right? So 
a significant shift relative to overall cost of capital. That's on the fixed side. On the floating side, we do a lot of construction at our shop, industrial and multifamily, and you're seeing pricing very similar to what we saw during the, during the last few years of 250 to call it 375 over. But when you go and look at where the index is, well, 250 to 350 over last year was 255 to 355 in terms of overall interest rates. Now you're looking at starting at around 7% up to 8.5%. And that's going to continue to rise because the SOFR, and we'll get into it and in what we anticipate in the future, but you're going to look at another, call it 50 to 75 basis point potential increase in that index, at least through the end of the in, call it end of the year. Thank you so much for that context. Um, I think just to sort of now crystallize that into the real world and how we're seeing it play out in the market locally, uh, Dina, could you kind of explain how you're seeing those rates affect your clients and what your clients are looking for in terms of investment sale opportunities now as compared to a year ago? Yeah, I think the number one thing that's really changed out, outside of interest rates and, and cap rates is number of total transaction volume. So across all asset classes, uh, the total number of actual transactions has gone down. So about 13% nationwide, specifically in the retail sector, about 10.9% uh, nationwide. So I think what that tells us is there's just a lot less buyers, uh, forced buyers out there uh, purchasing property. And then also on the seller side, there's a lot less forced sellers. And I think part of that is the decline in 1031 exchange transactions that have happened over the last 12 months or so. How the interest rates apply to specifically to retail and the single net tenant net lease sector, um, I have a couple of examples. So we did sell a BJ's in Q4 of 22, and that was at a 4.75. We sold an Olive Garden uh, Q1 of this year at a 4.75. And the reason I touch on, on those single tenant net lease assets is you just heard Bob say uh, lending is between a 5.5 to a 6% interest rate. So typically, these single tenant net lease products are acquired cash, and the debt market doesn't really influence these smaller single tenant net lease products as, as much as you would think. So you see these tremendous rise in interest rates, but it's not really applying to cap rates. Um, in the multi-tenant sector, if we want to shift gears off to that, typically the transaction pricing is a lot higher. So there will be a requirement for debt. There will be borrowing costs. Uh, last year, we sold a deal over on Lake Mead in the 95, Rock Springs Plaza, which is a 40,000 square foot multi-tenant retail center anchored by a Chipotle and a Panera Bread. And that's traded at a 5.6 cap. Today, that would probably trade a little bit over a six. But what I do think is that amongst the retail sector, it's one of the only asset classes that you can still borrow and get a little bit of a spread. Um, some of the other asset classes just aren't there yet if you're lending at a 7% interest rate and cap rates really haven't um, gotten there quite yet. I would also say that there's still a flight to quality on well-located assets and um, the buyer pool is just shrunk down without the need for a lot of 1031 exchange transactions. But that's what we're seeing in retail. It's part of the issue with, oh geez. Now, yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I can hear myself. Um, 
part of the issue with, I mean, yeah, there are cash buyers out there, especially in that like four to five million range or two to five million range. Um, however, if from our experience, investors still say, well, interest rates are here, even if I'm paying cash, right? So it's still in their minds. They're, they feel like they're overpaying mm -hmm. in some sense. I think it depends on the product that you want. Um, during COVID, we found a lot of investors that did not want to deal with multi-tenant anymore. So that drove interest on the single tenant side, right? Um, going to work with 40 different tenants and having to um, renegotiate leases or amend leases with COVID provisions and giving free rent was a real drag, especially if it's um, triple net lease and you're just collecting a check, you've got a third party manager, now you're having to make decisions. So interesting times, but um, we're seeing it on the single tenant side as well, just a little bit of a, a bump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, Dina mentioned, you know, as assets are performing well, it's not forcing sellers to sell and it's keeping prices high enough to where, you know, there aren't as many sale opportunities in the market. Are you seeing the same thing in the office space? Because I know you have a lot of office site experience or what are you kind of seeing in the, in the office market now? We've seen a slowdown for sure as far as the buyer pool. And I think that likely goes across all classes, maybe not industrial so much, the darling child. Um, but uh, certainly a slowdown, um, there are concerns. There are concerns about what that office um, tenant looks like, the makeup of it. And we all work in offices, right? And so it has certainly changed. Also, um, the work from home thought process um, that has been implemented, I'm sure, in every single office um, that we all go to every, well, three times a week at least. Um, so certainly changes. Um, Tenants are extending their lease for shorter, shorter terms. Prior, maybe about a year ago, a lot of our office leasing folks were saying uh, they were getting early renewals because of the concern from the tenant about lack of space out in the market. And rates were a little bit lower, uh, so that was pushing decisions to be made in advance. Landlords today are saying, you know, I've got a role in 2024, maybe it's a full floor tenant, I don't wanna poke the bear. Like, I don't want to touch that hot potato. Mm -hmm. If I'm getting the income today, I'll let it ride out, and then we can address it maybe six months in advance of that termination mm -hmm. or expiration. Interesting. Um, Dina, for, and on the leasing side of things, are you seeing sort of similar activity, or how has leasing changed over the last year? There's still a, a really strong demand for, for retail uh, leasing, and specific, specifically in the QSR market. So anything that's drive-through oriented, that's still highly desirable. Um, lots of new concepts that have come into town, like Salad and Go, that's an interesting one, that it's a 800 square foot drive-through that sells salad and wraps and breakfast. So, um, you know, I, I think that there's definitely still a demand for, for that type of retail. On the investment side of things, I've seen investors shift now to really seeking grocery anchored retail assets. And, um, you know, I would say probably the change in cap rates over the last uh, 12 months is probably somewhere between um, 40 to about 90 basis points in terms of increasing cap rates. And, and on the single tenant side, it would probably be uh, about 20 to 40 basis points. But activity on the leasing side, uh, uh, in my perspective, has been still strong. On the investment side as well, with grocery, we had so many investors that we met with that did not want to touch grocery. Yes, that's true. Right, because there was this major shift. Um, Plated came out, Green Chef came out, 
And so there, there was a lot of competition and now it seems to be more in favor yes. again. Yeah, um, pre-COVID yeah. for sure. It was, no, I don't want anything grocery anchored. Then COVID happened and you actually had to go to the grocery store to get your groceries. <laughs> and then they're like, wait, people still need daily needs. People still need to uh, get that instant item, whether it's uh, chicken for your family or diapers or eggs for $12.99, you know, anything that <laughs> you need to go. So That's right. And one, only one dozen, by the Just way. Just the one dozen. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested in the salad place. Where is this? So, uh, well, it is located <laughs> on Craig and Bruce. Okay. We have it listed for sale. Um, it's, it's located, it's uh, at a five cap and it's on Craig and Bruce. It actually opened a couple of weeks ago. They have 13 locations that are under construction right now. And uh, this was their first one open. So it's, it's done really well based out of Arizona originally. Very Those cool. types of concepts that shift from new concepts coming in has played a major role in transactions. Our team listed a former Chase Bank about a year ago. Um, we priced it at $47 per square foot on land value. It was like 1.25 acres. I think we had 27 offers on it, assuming that the Chase would be demoed. We sold it for $87, Alex, per square foot. $83, three, $83 per square foot, almost double the price that we were asking. And again, we had a pages of offers. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it sounds like they're sort of preferred assets in the sales market. Bob, if I could switch back to you, what are you seeing on the lender side? Are there certain assets that are um, you know, more favorable or what are you seeing in terms of lender activity? Sure. In terms of <clears throat> lenders, there's, there's different... Um, I guess, uh, uh, types of lenders, if you will. Uh, when, when I was in high school, I was pretty naive. I was the banks or the lenders, right? Um, but uh, that's certainly not the case in my world where, where you obviously have your banks and your credit unions as doing the majority of the lending. Um, you also have uh, life insurance companies that are really competitive on the long-term fixed rate product. You have your commercial mortgage-backed securities, your CMBS. That's your investment banks, your Goldman's, your Deutsches, your JP Morgan's, et cetera. You have the agencies, which we are a, a, a Fannie Mae um, dust lender and a Freddie Mac seller servicer, uh, which is primarily in the multifamily space. You've got your debt funds, which are primarily designed for uh, your shorter term bridge type money. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a, there's a abundance of capital that's out there ultimately. Um, now, having said that, the, 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 the capital isn't as efficient as we'd like it to be. Uh, as an example, CMBS, um, they usually play a good role in the higher leverage space, long-term fixed-rate money, um, non-recourse. They're just not competitively priced as of yet. They, they are getting a little bit better, but late last year there was a blowout in terms of spreads because of alternative investments by way of right, but primarily bonds that they can go into. And um, we have starting to see that, that spread come down. So they're a little bit higher priced than the five and a half to six. They're more in the six to six and a half, something like that. Um, and then not as flexible as say a bank or a life insurance company. Um, as I'd indicated before, the, the life insurance companies are more competitively priced in the 170 to 200 over range best pricing state for them is gonna be in the 135 over range, so low fives in terms of fixed rate, um, fixed rate product. So you have capital. Now the banks, on the other hand, um, the, the, the national banks were the first to really pull out of the market, especially during, um, uh, as, as this rumbling started to occur, the Fed's 
kind of started looking at the at the national banks, the big money center banks, as the as the as the first to go in and and make sure that they're um, that they're well capitalized relative to deposits, um, because there could be defaults coming down the road. So they pulled out of the market first. Regional banks kind of took their place, and local banks took their place to do continue to do construction lending. Now we're starting to see the regional banks kind of you know it's their turn to get reviewed by the feds. They are taking more of a step back as well. They're focused on existing relationships. Um, they're focused on deposit relationships. And any, in, in any new deal that they do, they're looking for some sort of deposit, as an example, anywhere between 5% of the loan amount to as high as 40% of the loan amount. So if you're requiring something like that, you might as well do it for cash, right? So there's, there's equity, or there's, there's, there's plenty of capital out there it's just not as efficient. Got it. So in terms of what you're seeing in the capital stack, if you could explain what a capital stack means, um, but kind of how are you seeing uh, the loans layer to be able to move forward to a sale? Well, um, let's talk about, I guess, some of the things, the, the, the new, the metrics that lenders look to to lend, which are affecting your buyers now. There's three sizing metrics that typically lenders look towards. Loan to value, anybody who has a home, right? You've got to be within a certain loan to value. That's given. And we've never really had an issue with loan to value over the last number of years. Debt yield, which is basically a lender's way to determine what, if they were to collect the, or foreclose on the property, how long it would take for them to recoup their loss. The higher the debt yield in terms of a percentage, the better off you are. And debt service coverage ratios your net operating income divided by your debt service. You need to make sure that you can cover it at a decent amount. Well, during the, the downturn where interest rates were really low, loan to value really wasn't an issue. Debt service coverage wasn't an issue because the interest rates were so low, the, the, the mortgage payment was low. It was the debt yield that was driving the, the pricing or the leverage. Now, it's not loan to value, it's not debt yield, it's debt service coverage ratios because the rates are so high, the mortgage payments are substantially higher, and that's resulting in a lot less capital that's available to acquire the retail property or the office property. You're limiting dollars. So what we could have had 65% leverage, 70% leverage in years past, you're now seeing it at 50, 55% leverage because of the debt coverage ratios. Well, what happens when you have an existing loan that may be coming due on a piece of real estate that you have to refinance? Well, there's some, there's some rescue capital that's out there. There's mezzanine financing, there's pref equity that can come in and fill what you call the capital stack. Mm -hmm. As an example, we were working on a construction loan that we just closed in December, multifamily construction loan. It actually started earlier in the year. We actually started, we went under application. There was some changes to the number of units and it delayed us. During that delay, the interest rates increased it was a 70% loan to cost, which was very common at that time. Dropped down to 60% because the, the new interest rate requirements, the banks were required to underwrite to a higher rate on the takeout, which impacted us. The borrower came to me and said, Bob, I don't have the liquidity to, to, to kind of bridge this, this, this gap. So we went out and brought in a PREF equity provider to come in and fill that gap that they lost. In fact, we took it from a 60% levered deal now up to 80% on the capital stack. Now it's expensive to do so. You know, your, your MES or PREF equity, depending on the leverage and how high you go, 
will be in the high single digits to mid-teens in terms of overall um, in terms of overall rates. Okay. Could you just explain for everyone, because I remember sitting in, in these sometimes not always understanding the lingo, what uh, PREF equity, preferred equity means, and what a, a mezzanine loan is, just really quickly so people have context. Yeah, they're, they're basically, in a way, a second loan against the property. Most lenders don't want seconds. So the way to do it and to structure it is to do a mezzanine or PREF equity piece, which is really assigned against the partnership interest as opposed to the real estate itself. And, the, and, and they're very similar in terms of its structure. Pref equity is preferred. When I was talking with the bank who ultimately lent, we said, well, we want, what do you prefer? Do you prefer mezzanine or do you prefer pref equity? Well, we prefer pref equity because we are able to show a 60% debt piece. If it's recognized as mezzanine, that's an additional debt piece that's going to be added to the capital stack. So by just simply changing the language of saying this same cost, it's not mez, this is pref equity. Okay, so that you're, you're okay within the loan to cost parameters that the feds are looking at to make sure you're adequately capitalized. Mm -hmm. In simplistic form. <laughs> yes. Um, Marlene and Dina, I mean, understanding that and sort of how capital is working in the market now, do you have any examples of um, deals and how that sort of played out in the last, I don't know, say six months? Um, on the office side, we had a deal. It was actually... I won't go into that. Um, it was about 70,000 square feet of Class A office. And when we started marketing the property for sale, we received several offers, of course. And, and this was kind of during COVID, so the, there was concern about bodies, you know, the physical occupancy. But talking with a couple of the um, buyers, we had one who had all cash, sold his business, was moving it to his um, money to Las Vegas. And he was talking about possibly getting a loan. And at the time, he said to us, um, if I can get a rate of 289, then I'll do it. Or no, of 275, then I'll do it. Well, the bank came back and said 289, 2.89%, 14 basis point difference. Now, that was a, a variable rate, right? So if he owned that today, he would be not very happy with me. I don't know why, but it, you know, he would be pretty upset. Right, because he would be doubling his um, interest rate, so to speak, in a matter of like 14 months. Um, so that's one example. If we took that property to market today, um, we traded it for about 24 million. I would sit at about seven cap, a little below that. I'm assuming we'd be high sevens, closer to eight percent interest rate, or cap rate rather, because of the interest rate um, rise. And typically on the investment side, you, I mean, you've got to have a gap, right, between the interest rate and the cap rate, or else you're going backwards. And it's about 150 to 200 basis points, depending on the asset. Yeah, I would say to avoid negative leverage, um, we've just had to get a little bit creative with some of the deals that we have. So, for example, we have a sportsman's warehouse in uh, La Cruces, New Mexico, that we are selling right now. And really to bridge the gap between the seller's pricing and the, and the buyer's pricing was to do a loan assumption. So there was debt on the property. Um, the existing interest rate was at a four and a half gap. And so they were able to work that through. And, and that's really the only reason we were able to, to get the deal done. I would say uh, with retail assets with upcoming loan maturity. It's looking at the property for the investor and saying, okay, well, this is what you own. 
how can we get to the number that you want so you can be comfortable with transacting? And sometimes that means breaking up the property overall. Maybe you end up parceling out the grocery store, you sell off the shop space, you sell off maybe um, the Burger King or something on the pads, and you can compress some of those cap rates to help build to the, the value that you want to achieve. So I think because debt is expensive, uh, you just have to get a little bit more creative on how you uh, transact. And are, are you seeing mostly just clients that you've had in the past, or is it sort of new buyers coming in the market, or how is the market shifting in terms of the people that you're seeing who are coming to, to purchase? So let's be clear, the, the buyers out there, there's plenty of, as they say, dry powder on the sidelines. So there is tons of, everyone's just waiting for the opportunity, and I think you know, the last uh, couple of quarters, as I mentioned earlier, transaction volume's gone down, but I think we're gonna see later this year in Q3 and Q4 that that's going to, to pick up. So buyers are still out there. They're not as motivated when the seller can't adjust to what the market pricing that they consider to be the market pricing to be, but there's still plenty of uh, dry powder on the sidelines. So um, I think the buyers are there, they're just, might not be in a 1031 exchange or something that's forcing them to have to, to purchase. The, the, their cash is there and they're, they're just waiting for the opportunity. Got it. And Marlene, could you kind of describe the, like given that on the buyer side and there is money sort of in the wings, what kind of conversations are you having with any sell side clients that you have about pricing and where the market's at? Well, there are a lot of motivations for sellers um, and it's not always to exchange into you know other real estate covid did help um, bring other uh, bring investors into the market looking for a different type of asset i think that's where it really helped retail yes. because you still have the triple nets you're not losing on the expense side and then retail tenants did so phenomenally well they were very strong whereas on office you know there was a big question are they going to return back to work is a tenant coming back they may have been paying but there's still that uncertainty in, in your, your stomach when you don't see a tenant turn their lights on for a good year and a half. Um, for um, the sellers that we've been working with, there are other motivations. They want to move into a different product class again. Maybe they own office, now they want industrial. Um, they want that ease of um, tenant improvements. I don't want to spend $80 per square foot building out a space. I want to spend $10 per square foot building out a space. Um, I don't want full service gross leases with cam reconciliations. I want triple nets. So um, that's driving it. And then uh, loans that are coming due that are maturing is certainly driving it. Instead of having to refinance, it's a matter of I'll take what I'm going to get today and then maybe cash out. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, well, bringing it back to the deal I mentioned in the beginning um, and how interest rates went up, my deal fell through. It sort of painted an unfortunate picture of the market. Uh, where are we going from here? Do we see, I guess, starting with you, Bob, um, do you see sort of things starting to stabilize? Or can you describe maybe the next six months and your expert opinion? In my expert opinion, huh? Mm -hmm. OK. Well, actually, when I sat down with the lenders um, this, this past week, I'd asked them where they thought uh, the, the Treasury was headed and where they thought SOFR was headed. Um, and by and large, well, it was such a wide gap. It ranged from, we're at 380 now, it ranged from 275 to four and a quarter, right? Okay, that helps, right? <laughs> um, what 
CBRE's in-house research group believes is that by the end of the end of the year, we're going to be somewhere around the three percent mark on the ten-year. Now on the SOFR, that's a little different. When you look at the SOFR curve, we're we're not done yet in terms of raising of rates. Okay, so the Feds continue to do what they do. It's supposed to peak five and a quarter-ish. Now again, in this, during the summertime, that same peak was supposed to occur really essentially now at four and a quarter. So it's always, it's always wrong. So when you look at a forward curve and you see what you call a hairy chart, it's, it, the hairy chart is where they think it's supposed to go at the time, and you can just see how wrong they have been. So at the end of the day, I think it's safe to say that at least on the shorter term indexes, you're going to stay high, and it's going to be higher. And it'll pro unless you see some significant impact in the economy, um, it's going to stay elevated. And into 2024, you could potentially see it start coming down if inflation gets in check. Okay. And so how do you see the retirement of LIBOR affecting things? I mean, do you see SOFR sort of matching up with that? Or how has it been transitioning? Is it May of next year or it, May of this year? It's already really, in, for all intents and purposes, w within the, the product that has, been, that has been priced, it's already made that transition. We've been pricing over SOFR for the last couple of years now. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't think it's going to be that big of a, big of a deal relative to the overall shifting from LIBOR to SOFR at okay. the end of the day. Is it just SOFR or are there other sort of Oh, there are, uh, over, there are hundreds of indexes mm -hmm. out there. Those are the indexes that are, that are the primary indexes that are quoted. Um, you know, there's a Maribor, there's, there's a number of different indexes, but those are the two major. Yeah. yeah, I've heard of a few of them, and is there, for my own benefit, is there some underwriting process to decide which gets applied, or was it sort of the market just decided so no, far? Well, that's a good question. The deal that we closed, in the, the multifamily deal, we were given three options to close. Do we want SOFR, do we want Prime, or do we want Ameribor? Well, we looked at the historical and where the, where the curves were going. We ended up with Ameribor. It saved maybe 10 basis points overall, but it was still better, and it was better preferred than, than something like Prime, mm -hmm. which is pretty high today. Okay, great. Um, and then back to you guys and your, your market specialties. I mean, Dina, where do you see the next six months going for you based on where we're at now? I think we're <clears throat> going to continue to see a slowdown in number of transactions, I would say, for the first two quarters of the year. I think that we're going to see that pick up uh, in maybe Q3 or Q4. No one wants to go out and be the first guy to look like, or, or gal, to look like an idiot and uh, make, you know, investments with all this money that they have just waiting. So I think it's, you know, we just got to see when that first person takes the, the step out and, and goes for it. But I think we're going to see some increases in Q3 and Q4 in terms of activity. And I agree. Yeah, yeah, um, but you know what's interesting? Q3 comes around so fast, so right? Fast. Yeah. So um, and you can kind of kick the can down the road a little bit, but um, I, I think that's what I've heard, at least from a lot of shoot, a lot of the people that um, I've been speaking with, is that you know during the summer there, it should even out a little bit, and then hopefully by Q3 it will um, kind of be the new norm, so to speak. Yeah, great. Um, well, we're, we just have a couple minutes left. I mean, do you guys have any? Final remarks for the group or any any deals or anything exciting you'd like to share? I'd like to say that I think, you know, with regards to I'm part of a larger team that's located in Phoenix, San Francisco, uh, Salt Lake, and, and Orange County. So I travel a lot 
and I see all these different markets, I'm extremely bullish when it comes to Las Vegas. Um, even in, with, when it comes to Las Vegas office specifically, because I'm in LA, I'm in San Francisco, and I see what's going on. We're working on some of these larger office pro properties that are very difficult to finance. Vegas overall, in terms of its, of its occupancy relative to office, and the new product that's being developed is being absorbed. Um, I'm, I'm extremely bullish relative to the other markets that, that I see. Um, and then we talked about the, the, the favorable product types. Um, I totally agree with you. Obviously, multifamily and industrial are at the top, grocery anchored retail, and then you've got office. Even though it has its issues, there are lenders out there for office. It needs to be the right asset, the right sponsor, the right leverage, et cetera. Um, but it isn't as dry as I thought it would be, um, but it's, it's gonna just take that special deal. How about you guys, anything, yeah, anything else, I, closing remarks? I think Vegas is in a great position. Um, there's lots of great things still happening in our market, and I think uh, F1 that uh, just signed another, I think, 10 years. That, things like that are really bringing a lot of momentum to Las Vegas, and even the office market here along the 215 Beltway where CBRE is and now Collier is in the narrative, I mean, there's, it, it feels good to be out there. It feels good to be back in the office, uh, so I, I'm not too scared about that. And retail follows that. You know, we need uh, retailers to service these office tenants. And um, so, yeah, go Vegas. <laughs> yeah, and I'm bullish as well. Um, the work from home model has, has worked for a couple of years, and we're seeing some adjustments to that. I believe that as human beings, we want to be around people and that we do better when we can um, share ideas. You know, our team just rolls our chairs together and we have a meeting right there in our little cube versus calling each other and getting voicemail or having a Teams call and looking at each other on the screen. So I think that um, that will have some continued adjustments. Um, and of course, we're going to see some right sizing of office space as a result mm -hmm. of that. But I know that a lot of employers want their employees to come back to work, so we'll see higher physical occupancy. You know, our market was typically um, about 60 to 70 percent physical occupancy if you kind of took a poll of maybe 10 office brokers. And um, there's a, a large office development here in town that's over a million square feet that um, tracks their parking, the parking carts to get in and out of the garage. Um, and they're saying that they're at about 50% physical occupancy. So um, we're, we're getting, you know, we're, we're not too far below where we were. I mean, in some places, in some tenant suites, you can certainly see it, but there will be a leveling off there as well. Um, I called a major airline the other day to change a, a ticket, and you can tell the difference, right, when somebody's in a call center versus when they're at home. <laughs> and I heard the dog. <laughs> and then I um, called um, the warranty company um, just a couple weeks ago, and I heard like a chicken or a rooster or a peacock. <laughs> and so it works for so long, but then, you know, at the same time, it kind of leaves you as the customer with this thought of what is going on, right. you know? And did you get my social security number, yeah. <laughs> right? Or whatever the case is, my PIN number. Um, Bob and I are not good friends anymore because he's been delivering such horrible news. Um, so I'm glad I made the jump. <laughs> Same with Kyle Nagy, wherever he is out there. Um, I think I saw him yeah. somewhere. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that we'll see some, some leveling off. And of course, the owner-user market is still strong as well. So just a little bit of a pivot there. 
Yes, employers using all types of ways to make sure you're in the office. I, we have swipe cards, so I'm wondering if you're talking about where I work. <laughs> or logging into your, your computer, we'll see. Um, but it is interesting, and I think those two markets too, I mean, there seems to be a demand for office with retail supporting, so there's amenities for workers to you know, take advantage of during their breaks and make work a little bit nicer. So maybe we'll see some more of that um, in Valley Development. But, Thank you all so much for your time. It's really been great um, getting to know you through this process. And I think we'll turn it over to Dan, who. You're not done yet, Jamie. But oh. we have a couple <laughs> questions from the audience. One um, from for Dina and Marlene. If you have so much money to spend, why are people spending it in Vegas versus Phoenix or Salt Lake? Or is a restaurant a restaurant or an office building an office building? Is that? general theme of the question. I think the tax environment in Nevada is advantageous to other markets. And I, I think that a lot of other investors see the long-term growth. We're a relatively young city, and there's still a lot of momentum to be had for Las Vegas. So I think that's a major reason why um, a lot of investors are looking at Vegas. And we've also diversified coming off the strip and just being like a gaming town. Uh, our industrial sector is super strong, and so I think that allows people to see that we're actually a real city and we're growing outside of the Strip. And the one positive that COVID did um, for our city and for our business is it did allow employees to leave Western states, one in particular, um, and you know maybe rent an apartment here at a much lower cost of living, and therefore they can possibly work here. I know of one office tenant, um, about 30,000 square feet, which is large for our market. Um, he, the um, CEO moved here, moved to Las Vegas, and is bringing with him um, a brand new employee base at a much lower cost uh, than he is paying in California. So it allowed for that migration to occur and people to understand that yes, no, we're not all going out to the strip every night and you know, putting our well, you don't put quarters in anymore. I don't know. You, whatever, you swipe. Yeah, no more. Yeah, you swipe. Um, so yeah, it opened everyone's eyes, or a lot of people's eyes. So it's opportunity for all of us. Is California affecting the tenants and the investor both equally? Yes, thank you, California. Yes, yeah. Well, and you see it on the residential side too, Yeah. right, in a big way. So yes. Um, and Emily was mentioning another tax that went into effect in LA County that is going to just keep adding on to the debt stack, using Bob's capital stack terminology, of um, any given household. Bob, will you see any painted defaults over the next 12 months? Well, you, you, you are starting to see defaults. You are starting to see, especially on the office side, um, you've, the, the likes of Blackstone, Heinz, they've given back properties. RXR gave 10% of their portfolio back in, in New York, back to the bank. Brookfield just uh, defaulted on two large office towers in LA. So the, the, the wave is coming primarily with office, um, but with the other asset classes, you're seeing them to perform really quite well. And the lenders are, are really trying their best not to foreclose. They're, they're working with their clients to see about extensions, um, cash and refinances, or some sort of um, uh, a way to, to not have to foreclose. They're trying their darndest to, to do that. 
Likewise, um, I met with our investment sales group on the note side in San Francisco about a month ago. You can imagine how busy they are. About 70% of their portfolio is consisting of office paper. And so they're able to sell it at a pretty considerable discount. So there is a, a common theme that you think that that's going to, a lot of rescue capital is going to be needed. I see it more so in the office space as opposed to the other spaces. In Southern Nevada, um, th there are there could be some some issues. You know, when you look at the CMBS default or the CMBS list of watch list and all that's coming up, it, the majority is multifamily and then retail. So it could, you know, but, but who knows what the stories are? It's hard to kind of qualify that, right? Yeah, because that, that's a good point. I, I, I when you when you bring that up, the. The need for the for, for multifamily and industrial when they were they're, they're on floating rate debt, when in, in higher um, higher leverage that can be afforded to now, um, that's where the rescue capital is going to come into place with the Mez or Pref Equity that's going to step in. Um, but that's a, that's a really good point in terms of the uh, um, some of that floating rate money that's going to be coming up, where, where you would need some rescue capital or it will force a sale. We have a question talking about if 1031 money's a little soft right now, and that's probably softening some of the prices, is that a fair statement? Not necessarily. The inventory is low. Um, so there, when I was mentioning earlier, there's a flight to quality. And actually, the average per square foot uh, retail sales has increased um, over the last couple of quarters. Not substantially. I think it was at like 243 a foot nationally, and now it's at 244. So, I mean, yes, the 1031 exchanges are, are, are slower. We're just seeing products sit a little bit longer because we have, you have to wait for the right buyer. But I don't think it's necessarily affecting pricing that strongly. And thank you for that, because the follow-up in the same question was, who's filling the buyer gap if the 1031s are a little less percentage of the buyers? Or is it just taking longer? It's just taking a little bit longer. It's just sitting a little bit longer. But I mean, if you take a search right now on <clears throat> CoStar, LoopNet, and look at where Las Vegas assets are, I mean, there's there's not a ton of high quality assets. So I think it's still a flight to quality, and sellers just have to be more patient to find the right buyer. So what percentage, and you can both answer, of your business is 1031s? I would say last year, probably like 90%. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I just think that's kind of like right now we're working with an office buyer. Um, uh, Marlene touched on owner user being very strong and I, I believe for the office market that's still pretty strong right now. We're working with a, a buyer looking out in, in Henderson and they're not in a 1031 exchange. They're just tired of paying rent and they want to own their own building. Um, so I think that that's one of the buyer motivations is just getting to own on their own, so not necessarily a 1031. Is it, is it safe to say that in terms of the buyer pool that's out there, it's more private capital as opposed to institutional right now? 100% in our, yeah, in our space. I haven't seen an institutional buyer in years. <clears throat> Although, like RCA reports that I think 20% of the sales last year were institutional. I'm not sure how they calculate that because even when we sold Tivoli Village, that was a private investor, 1031 motivated. How do you, you know, that's $200 million. Bob, uh, the question is, when does the debt or mezzanine partner exit in the transaction? When do they get paid back? 
they typically like to be coterminous with the existing first. Um, so it depends on like if it's an agency execution um, and it's a 10 year deal, it could be in for 10 years. It's typically not that long. Um, and, and that is tip, the, the preformes typically comes in for a period of three to five, typical, but it could be as long as 10. Dean, as somebody that's very mad, they have to drive across town to go to a solids and go. Can you expand on that? So sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. Anonymous. <laughs> Anonymous. Well, um, there's quite a few. I can go stand behind her if you want. Yeah, no, there's there's going to be plenty popping up. I think they have 13 under construction right now, so there will be one by you soon. <laughs> Bob, another in the weeds question, are, are relationships getting any preferred rates, existing relationships with banks? Or is uh, yeah, I think they are. Um, we're working on a construction loan right now for a preferred client where typically construction pricing is 250 to 350 over. We're sub 200 right now for the preferred client. In the old term of banking, cash flow credit and, uh, and what's the other C? Credibility? Character, credibility, I think does, that's what does you Does character said. and credibility matter anymore? Oh, absolutely. It always has ever since the Great Recession, right, where, you know, it's, they're going to they're gonna make sure that, uh, especially the banks, want to make sure that they have clean, tra clean track records. Jamie, do you have any other questions that you left? Um, I don't think so. Do you guys have any questions for each other? No. Where, when are you going to New York? In about one hour. <laughs> Good deal. I'll say hi to my daughter for me. I will. Small city. Um, on the, just touching on the, the bank relationship side, we're closing a deal next week. It's office. And um, the lender is a relationship bank. They have done, um, this will be their 14th deal with this buyer. The buyer is out of state. This will be their first acquisition here in, in Nevada. And it's based on rate, and um, the, the decision to go with this, this bank is based on rate for the buyer um, and the flexibility with the loan. So if they want to refinance in three years, they have that ability to do so. And we're seeing a lot of the debt that's being placed on assets that we've sold be much shorter term. Even if it's CMBS, it's been five years, not 10 years. Yeah, three to five year money is really kind of the, the preferred term right now with flexible prepay. So the hope being that by that time, rates will have definitely settled and they can refinance at a much lower rate. Jamie, we have a question for you. Are your clients bullish on Las Vegas, both on the Strip and in the suburbs that you have? So um, my what practice- do they, What do they see in 2024, you know, if you give this year a pass? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm working with Station Casinos, this is another one that's public record, on their new Inspirata property, and they're looking to move forward pretty quickly based on timeframes they negotiated with the city of Henderson. Um, I think uh, most of the work that I've done outside of sort of the development space was gaming related. We saw some of those deals sort of fall apart at the end of last year. I can't really go into details on them. Um, but yeah, I mean, most of my client base is, is in-state. And like I said, I, this was a really in interesting conversation for me because I don't practice in the finance space. And so sort of hearing what's driving the market and how deals get to my desk was, was very interesting. 
Well, thank you, and thank the uh, audience. We have wonderful attendance today, 30-plus tables. Appreciate it. So, Jamie, you really kept this panel on point. Great job with that. Panelists, uh, th you can't get these discussions anywhere else. So great job by the Programs Committee. Marlene has to go to New York, so we're going to let her go. Thank you to Gensler, our sponsor today. And that concludes today's breakfast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.